BTB listeners, thank you so much for checking out today's episode. Listen, if this episode inspires you, do me a favor and take five seconds to shoot me a like and subscribe to the podcast. There are several more exciting guests that are in the pipeline, and I just can't thank you enough for your continued support, and let's keep paying the mission forward. On today's episode of the BTB Project. Today's guest is one of the most unique individuals I've ever come across. He is the founder of a company, Natural Tennis, that specializes in racket sports, of which he is known for playing tennis with a two-handled racket. This unconventional style belongs to a player who's achieved remarkable success, a career-high ranking of top 800 in the world in singles and 80 in doubles. He's not just any tennis pro, but he's one of the only few to have ever done it with a two-handled tennis racket, a groundbreaking design crafted by his coach, Linnell Burt. As we dive into his career and talk about his journey, he is one of the most inspiring individuals I've ever come across. Brian Battistone, welcome to the BTB Project. Welcome to the BTB Project, designed to empower listeners to identify their why and to live their best lives no matter the circumstances. My name is Coleman Gerhardt. A former athlete and motivational coach, I've had the opportunity to inspire thousands through my story and help accomplish what they are built to be. You'll be encouraged by each and every episode, and let's get into it. Yeah, when I blow up, I'm a sore high like Peter Pan. In real life, be living out my dreams if I'm waking up with some There are not too many times in my life where I'm able to, again, connect with people that are inspirational. And I remember coming across this young man actually in my homeland here in Colorado. And I was playing in the car to stay open coming off of an injury. And I was a little bit unsure of what was going to happen with my tennis game moving forward. And he had this crazy racket in his hand, had two handles, and it just spurred a bunch of curiosity in my life. And nonetheless, We've been able to connect and I've been able to play with this racket for over 10 years. And it's just an absolute pleasure to welcome Brian Battistone to the BTB project. Thank you so much for having me. No, absolutely. So first and foremost, I know you're just coming off of a tournament match and I would love for you to catch the listeners up to what is the career and life of Brian Battistone like these days? I appreciate you being patient with me. (laughs) <laughs> I've been trying to schedule this for a while and and I was traveling throughout Europe just just made it back to the states here in Las Vegas There's, coming back here was there was going to be a, a challenger that they've had pretty much every year for the past 10 years but unfortunately they were unable to host it this year but there was on the schedule 15k so ah. one of my players was playing at, his partner backed out at the last minute so kind of thr- thrust me into action there but we weren't able to <laughs> get the job done yesterday but we had fun out there and I have a couple players that also played this week in Italy and they're they're coming back so we're gonna finish I guess it goes without saying I'm, I'm coaching pretty much full-time but I still 
but I still sneak in some matches here and there. And, and the guys I coach are trying to make it onto the main tour playing doubles mostly. Yeah. And I have a, I have a few other guys kind of come in and out. They're still playing singles, but for the most part, we train in doubles and they're one of the guys is in the three hundreds right now. A couple others are like seven, eight hundreds, but we're playing mostly futures, some challengers trying to get to the tour level. Yeah, no, and I think it's awesome that you're still finding opportunities to play. I'm sure if your body's anything feeling like mine, I'm 39 years old, a uh, few knee surgeries, few back surgeries, but racket, the, the concept of natural tennis is something that has actually kind of taken the, the game of tennis, which is usually just a one-side dominant sport, right? And it's delegated it to be kind of more of a a neutral body, neutral position sport. And I'd love for you to tell the listeners still being able to go out and play 15 K events. How's the body feeling and how much of the racket has to do with that? That's amazing because I get asked that question a lot. Not, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm out there doing things that other, what other 40 plus year olds can't do, but it, there is something to the idea. I haven't had any significant injuries my entire tennis career. I mean, I grew up playing other sports, but if I had to circle back to one sort of common denominator in all the, the time I've been playing tennis, even before the two-handled racket, I was always sort of, I had this instinct to want to play ambidextrously, right, wow. with, with sides of my body. So in, in that sort of, it, it created this like feeling in my body that I was always doing something that was balanced. And even if I'm not spending time in the gym, I'm not very diligent with my stretching or anything like that. It just felt like every time I was on court, I wasn't, just as you said, I wasn't doing anything that was sort of reinforcing injuries that could be created through imbalanced activity, right? I do too much of something on one side. I, I definitely feel some of the other things that other tennis players or other athletes talk about in terms of their lower back or this or that. But as long as I'm, you know, even if it's going out and hitting some lefty serves or hitting some lefty forehands on the ball machine. If, if I don't, cause I'm naturally right-handed, like I, I grew up doing everything right-handed, but as soon as I started uh, playing more equally with both sides of my body, then I honestly haven't felt any significant injury for the last like 20 years. So I, I there's nothing else I can attribute to like my ability to stay healthy in that way. than than that really. Yeah. I mean, what a, yeah. What a blessing you've been able to stay healthy. And that's not a, a common thing in the world of tennis. I mean, you and I both know at the highest level how physical the game is now, especially in singles. And <laughs> there's right. a lot of doubles guys that are just as physical. But nonetheless, that's a testament to whatever you're doing. Must be the water, the nutrition back home, whatever you're doing, it's, it's working. But nonetheless, I think it would be kind of fun because when I started playing with the two-handle tennis rackets, I had a lot of interesting conversations that came from it. A lot of people that, and listen, I was always one that had no problem handling my fair share of adversity on the court. I was a very passionate player. I was serving volley. I was trying to end the point as quick as I could. And I just would love to know, like, I'll give you an example. When I first got the two-handled tennis racket, someone came up to me and said, where'd you get that racket? And I said, I actually got this from a vending machine. And that's what kind of I decided to do is I just was humorous with it because you and I both know it's, it's not traditional. There's not a lot of people that play with it, but I'd love to know 
when did you first come across this whole concept and what's kind of maybe one of the more unique conversations you've had about the racket? Well, that's a terrific question because I think a lot of people assume that I just always thought, wow, this, this racket is the greatest thing. But the, for, the fact of the matter is the first time I saw it, I had the same reaction that everyone else did. I was like, man, that thing's weird. Like, I don't, I don't know if I, I mean, I was living in LA and I was playing at some courts in Hermosa beach uh, where, where I played all the time. And I wasn't, I didn't, I played some junior tennis, but I was kind of, I had a unconventional path where I was living there between, I would say 18 and, and 21. I was playing some of the open tournaments and I was just experimenting with my game. That's the best way to say it. And it was actually the son of the original inventor of the racket who Lionel Burt is the inventor of the racket. His son, Adam Burt, he still actually coaches at those same courts in Hermosa beach, but he, he saw me hitting with, with forehands on both sides with a traditional racket. He's like, Hey, you should, you should meet my dad. He invented a racket that would make that a lot easier. And so we set up a hit and you brought it out and I'm just looking at it thinking, no, I don't know. There's, there's no way I could even conceptualize using that at that point in time. But he showed me a few things. He, he made me an offer, like right off the bat, the first time I saw him, he said, hey, I need someone like you just to play with the racket, just to, to be able to go out and play tournaments and show people that it's possible. So that intrigued me for sure. And then the more time we, we ended up spending, I would say the next few months, we, we would spend four or five days a week on court together. And my nature is definitely not, if I find something I like, I'm not going to go promote it to everyone else. So I was never the one to like, be like, Hey, try this. But I, I realized for myself that it was going to work for, for what I wanted to try to do. So, so I became convinced that I could, I could play with it. And of course, everyone at those courts, everyone at the tournaments I would play, they're saying, Oh, you'll never, it's, it's a gimmick. It's this, it's that, but you know, it wasn't, Number one, like I said, I wasn't trying to convince anyone of anything. I just wanted to play with it myself. And as long as it was legal and approved for tournament play, I was just going to go out and, and see what I could do with it. And I had the support of Lionel. And, and there was a small circle of guys there, like in the L.A. area. And, and that's, that's a – I think a lot of crazy ideas come from that area. We'd, ah. we'd play in Santa Monica. <laughs> we'd be like down on Venice Beach. So there's so much – it's like the two-handle racket a lot of times was the least interesting thing going on down there, right? There's so right. many other things. <laughs> cool because the courts we would train at a lot, they have – Lionel's no longer with us, but they have a mm. little plaque there that commemorates him. I mean, he would wake up every day and be there from like 7 till 8 p.m. at night. That was his his passion, and, and that's sort of where I learned to play with the racket. And it started with just the open tournaments in, in Southern California, and – sort of took a little bit of a hiatus where I didn't play tennis for a few years in between there. But then I came back and decided, Hey, I'll just try to see how far I can go with this. And I convinced my brother to start playing with the racket, even though he had no background using the racket at all either. And we, we just made a push. We were able to play together for a few years. His family obligations like didn't enable him to continue playing, but we made a push as far as we could playing with the racket. And like I said, maybe there were a lot of steps along the way where we could have better or just explained it better. But I had a little bit of a tunnel vision on just I wanted to play as much as I could and, and have as much success with it and let the rest sort of take care of itself. Yeah. And I think that's 
an awesome testament to sometimes people with these inventions or ideas or whatnot have this crazy philosophical story that goes along with it. But just to know that you came across this by being the same type of reaction that a lot of people have have seen when, when they look at my racket, I think is really cool. And where you and I are cut from the same cloth, Brian, is we're definitely ones that don't shy away from some adversity. And I think it was really telling that you were able to take on that racket and then ultimately play with your brother. Myself, I got a brother that's four years older than me, and he was the one that would beat me in every sport. And tennis was the only one that I could get him in. It was his senior year of high school. I'm a freshman. I try out for the team. I beat him for the last spot on the team. He duct tapes me to a flagpole the next day. But that's how I got my fire to get after this game. And I share that because going back to where I first saw you play with this racket, the Colorado State Open, Colorado is not known for being a tennis mecca by any stretch of the imagination, primarily because of the altitude. Mm -hmm. So knowing that a two-handled racket is pretty unconventional, knowing the way you serve and your playing style, pretty unconventional, what led you to taking your talents to a mile high above sea level to play the game of tennis? It's, it's funny. That period of time was, was right around when I stopped playing on tour full-time when I stopped traveling I when my brother stopped being able to travel and play I, ha I had some other doubles partners I would travel and play with I was spending most of my time in, in Europe but it never quite had the same meaning as playing with my brother right because we were out there we had an objective we were gonna go for it and then when I started sort of switching up partners every few weeks I was trying to figure out just the best best path forward I guess you could say I ended up coming back to the States and, and doing some coaching. And I had, I always just, as much as I had more success in, in doubles, I always really enjoyed playing singles and I had a little bit more control over uh, my schedule and, and everything like that. So I just said, Hey, I'm going to play some open tournaments and, and see how that goes. And I was still experimenting with my game. We were making adjustments to the racket and that's a whole other story because I started playing with a, a different version of the two-handled racket, which we called the diamond, but that probably set my competitive progress back a little bit because like relearning how to play all over again, going from a traditional racket then to the two-handled racket. But then we, we had a another version which had the angles bent in a different way. So there were there was just a lot of experimentation going on. And I started entering all of these. I was living in Las Vegas at the time and I started entering all these tournaments that were just anywhere I could drive to for the most part. Uh, mostly in, in California, but, but also I went up and played like the Pacific Northwest circuit that goes up through Seattle and Tacoma and those tournaments. And, and, and yeah, someone told me about the Colorado state open because I, I had never played in, in, I don't even think, yeah, my entire life, I'd never played a tournament in, in Colorado or, or even Denver or outside of Denver. Mm. And uh, they, funny enough, they, I couldn't, I remember calling or sending an email to to Sam Hitman and they yeah. couldn't get draw. He was really cool about it. He was just like, Hey, like we don't really have any information on you. And I'm not sure if you can even, if we can even fit you in. And I was playing a tournament in Arizona at the time. And then I, maybe one or two days before the tournament started, it's like, okay, we, we can put you in the qualies. We had someone drop out. So I came and I ended up just the qualies matches gave me an opportunity to sort of get, get used to the, 
the altitude and everything like that. I think there was some rain. I played indoors. Yeah. I, wow, I've never played in a place like even though I lived in Utah when I was younger, like and I know there's altitude there, but it wasn't I never I wasn't really playing tennis back then, right? So the style of game I had been playing, which was serve and volley and pretty much trying to attack the returns and, and come in, I was like, wow, everything became so much easier when I was playing those matches in in, in Denver. And yeah, I, I mean I remember the first year, I might be getting some years mixed up, but I think I, I, I was playing guys that I grew up like when I was watching matches and, and challenge or the challengers and the tour level guys that I had the utmost respect for and always looked up to. I think I played Paul Goldstein one round. Yeah, that Jam- was crazy because that year, and I know, I know Sam well because of my relationship with Jeff Salzenstein when I was working with him, it was out of Gates Tennis Center. And I remember that particular year you came in. I mean, they had Jen Michael Gamble, Paul Goldstein. They had just some some really big names. And that's Taylor, crazy to hear from you that these were like idols of yours growing up. Yeah, in fact, I mean, I would watch videos. It's so funny how it worked out that way because I used to literally like like scour the internet watching videos of Jan Michael because he played two hands both sides, right? Yeah. And so I was with the the racket i was like learning how to play two hands both sides so i would watch videos of him and i would watch videos of taylor dent as well yeah yeah, and so these guys like that i had like hand picked out to be able to sort of study their games and try to emulate some of the things they were doing all of a sudden we're in the same draw and and both those guys i I got to know them a little bit and they were super cool and just like very down to earth and, and were able to sort of just just give me some some feedback like i remember asking each of them some some questions about how they played on tour and whatnot and it was just a great experience and 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 i think more than anything it just made playing in colorado just just made the game a lot easier for me and and that's why i was bring a few matches uh, together because guys weren't it was a little tougher i felt like for for guys to pass me at the net just because everything was happening so much quicker than than usual yeah no and i mean i i saw that with my very own eyes and to draw parallel, I mean, Colorado native, I played at the University of Northern Colorado and we played a lot of our home matches when we turned division one at the Air Force Academy, which I believe is like the second highest elevation courts in the country, besides, huh? I think maybe Flagstaff, Arizona, just being able to utilize the power game. Like I loved it when people came to Colorado to play us in college, but when I went to California or Florida or Texas, everything slowed down and it was definitely more challenging. So I, it was a tremendous watch to, to see you at the Colorado state open. And it makes me reflect hearing about your brother, hearing about what you're doing as a coach. I want to know, Brian, where this all started for you, because I know you're a multi-sport athlete, but do you remember when you were first introduced to tennis? I do. And I lived, I was born in Santa Barbara. We spent time living in Utah when I was younger. And I remember, I remember my brother taking some tennis lessons. I wasn't really interested at the time in in Utah and I never really played there. But when we moved back to the Palm Springs area, it was just, it felt like, it felt like tennis. There was a world-class tennis facility on every corner. You know, that area, it's like Indian Wells. I mean, there's just the climate, everything about that area, it's like golf and tennis oriented. So I was exposed to it when I was growing up. And I think I think my mom just, she would play a lot. And, and my dad had played as well. And they just were 
constantly nudging me, hey, you should take some tennis lessons. And even though I was I was super focused on basketball and then I was playing football and baseball as well growing up, I think just little by little, my mom taking me and putting me in clinics and so forth when I was 12, 13, it gradually just started growing on me. And, and I, I was able to play some of the junior tournaments. I never really traveled. Maybe one time I played a national tournament in Tucson, Arizona. But other than that, I just played some of the local events. And even though my, I would say my just technique and even my experience was, was a lot less than the other players in Southern California, I, I still had some decent results. Yeah. And, and that kind of gave me, it planted a seed in my mind that if I ever like wanted to sort of take it more seriously, that I could have some success. So the problem was like in high school, if you're, if it's during basketball, if you're in basketball season, you're doing the 6 a.m., wake up and the fitness and, and it basically takes your whole day and then same thing for football and and so I wouldn't touch a racket for six months and then I'd try to start playing again and then there's just a lot of yeah good tennis in that area so my main motivation at the time when I was in high school was actually just our high school tennis team and um, I remember making the decision to to not play baseball and to play to play tennis simply because i the other guys on the team we had we had like a a roster of guys who who were all they all pretty much i think every single one of them went on to play division one tennis except for me oh, which wow. is yeah i mean number one at pepperdine number one at fresno state my brother played at boise state and then byu and we won cif team i think twice and then our guys won the individuals and so we had a really stacked team for high school and that kind of gave some extra motivation. But I, like I said, I was near the bottom of the lineup. I was just kind of uh, along for the ride and, and everyone else, I didn't get really any offers to go play anywhere. It wasn't until after that I kind of, because I, I was more motivated to try to play college basketball. But when I decided to focus on tennis after high school, I had to kind of figure out sort of what style I was going to play, what my game would look like and everything like that. And that was sort of the impetus for me to be able to try to try to play on tour one day. Man, that's so cool. I got shivers when you were telling me about your high school experience. Cause my senior year, I remember in the number one singles bracket in high school tennis in Colorado, it was 15 of the 16 guys in the state bracket had D one scholarships. <laughs> and I never actually qualified for state in high school. I would always get beat in regional. So to know that I was able to play division one and I wasn't even making the state tournament in Colorado, I mean, there was guys like Chad Harris, we Kim, I mean, Richard Johnson that we talked mm -hmm. about. I mean, there's just some great players. And for you to kind of, I don't know, probably maybe lick your wounds in those moments of playing against some really tough players. I think one thing that resonates with me is when I got to watch you play at the state open basketball makes sense because you're out there in basketball shorts. You don't see Rafael Nadal play with an inseam like that <laughs> long shorts, man. And I just, I just thought that was so cool. And I'm just wondering, like, like having such a, an athletic pedigree and kind of unconventional tennis development, did you ever have a time in your life where socially, like your high school buddies were giving you a hard time for that? Or was it just kind of mutual respect because you were so athletic? I don't, all I can say is I've always just tried to, to play, whether it was a racket, whether what I wore, I, I didn't really give much thought to it other than I was just trying to play with what I felt comfortable oh. and what I felt like in terms of the racket and my game style and the serve. I mean, I, I know 
I hear people talking and I hear like them questioning the racket or saying, oh, he wants attention with the serve, whatever it is. And I just like, I mean, I just never really thought about that. I'm just out there and I sort of get in my zone when I'm on the practice court thinking like that's how the the, the serve originated. I was just like, well, what if I could do this? And I started by doing like a running start. And then I was like, okay, they called a football on me. You can't run in a match. I was like, okay, I can't, can't do that. So I started abbreviating it. And I just, I just sort of, if I get an idea, I want to run with it. And like, it doesn't, it, I just don't really, of course I'm aware of what people are saying and most of it's negative, but it's, at the same time, it just doesn't like sink in like to the, to the extent that when I'm out there playing, I just have, I feel like I'm in my bubble. I just want to do whatever it is that that I feel sort of inspired to do in, in terms of being able to go out there, implement what you practice, implement like a strategy and just go for it. And I think that's probably the thing I'm, I'm most in love uh, with tennis about is like you have the opportunity to sort of have a vision of the way you want to play and go out and implement it. And of course, there's there's a lot of challenges, but there's really nothing and I mean, I know you can relate to this, like, because there's a lot of examples throughout childhood where you're, you want to play a certain way, but maybe in a team sport, like you're prevented from doing that. Like when I played football, I mean, I want, I was going to be quarterback and I was like, what, I want to be wide receiver. And I, every play, I felt like I was hoping, but if the, the quarterback, he would kind of pump fake to me and then run around the end, like, <laughs> and so I was like, how can I be open? I feel like I'm open every play, but I'm not getting the ball. So it's a, a bit frustrating. So it's like in tennis, you know, and I, I still love those sports. I love playing basketball, everything like that. But at the end of the day, it's like, there's no one when you're, once you're on the court, it's like, if you want to hit a jump serve, if you want to try play with two forehands, there's no one who's really going to stop me. You know what I mean? And, and I want to, I wanted to see those like sort of ideas evolve like in my head and be able to do it in competition and so that you kind of have to create your own like I say a bubble where where no matter what anyone else says and and it's maybe I always make room for for the fact that people with in commenting about the racket or the serve or anything else like that that there could be valid aspects to what they're saying it's like oh hey maybe you can't do this with that and that's totally fine but I ultimately I just have this streak that I want to try to figure it out for myself. That's all. And, and so it's not, yeah, it's not any more complicated than that, really. <laughs> I, I love the simplicity of it, Brian, and you have accomplished a lot. And I want to kind of button up what you've done on the tour and as a player and with your brother. I mean, that is just unbelievable. And I just remember watching some old recordings of you at, at the U.S. Open, watching you play. It's at Indian Wells, I can't imagine what that moment meant for you, knowing the history of uh, spending some time there and, and childhood and things like that. But why don't you walk the listeners through maybe some some key highlights from the pro tour and what it meant for you to be there with your brother? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we sort of circling back to that period of time when I was living in LA and first experimenting with the racket, I ended up in 2007 my brother and I entered our first futures event together. We'd played, we'd played earlier, sort of <clears throat> several years prior to that, we'd played a few events, but this was sort of the first time both of us playing with a two handled racket. And we decided, Hey, we're just going to go out and see us, see how far we can take this. And we lost, remember we lost our first match there in Claremont, California. They, they've all, they always had that 
10K future there. And we're like, okay, that was a bit of a tough, tough way to start things out. But then the very next week, we, we finaled a tournament in Laguna Niguel. And then we decided, okay, let's, let's try to find somewhere else we can get in play. And, and ironically, the, the following week was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And that was, that was where I met Jeff Salzenstein, actually. He was there with J- James McGee. I remember yeah, talking to nice. those. Yeah, and, and we won that one. So all of a sudden, we had some momentum. And, and we thought, okay, we've got enough points now. Like, let's just, at the time, they had, they had doubles qualifying at the Challengers. So they, they would do like a four-team qualifying. We said, just let, let's go to the bigger events and, and see where we get in. So slowly but surely, we started picking up enough points. And I think it took us about a year and a half to get like in the like 150 range where we were starting to get into some of the bigger events. Ironically, I mean, there's, there's so many losses along the way. I mean, you think back and you think like, wow, we did like, because we got into a Newport ATP event and we lost, but, but that was a very like momentous occasion. Cause all of a sudden go from people telling us, Hey, you're never going to win a match at a future. Right. There's no way you got like two handled racket. What's all this nonsense. And people just kind of making fun of us. All of a sudden we're playing an ATP event and we lost, but, but I felt like we competed pretty well and we're playing on the grass courts there at, at the hall of fame. Yeah. Yeah. Newport, Rhode Island, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So that was just an awesome experience. I got to play singles qualities there too. And it just started to seem a little bit more real that like we could play some of these tour events. And, and so we, you know, that was, I remember being that like a, a pretty powerful sort of realization for me. And then Dan and I, like probably our, our best streak, we, we, we were down like a set and a break, like in a, in the Sacramento challenger to Rajiv Ram and John Isner. Yeah. And, not a bad doubles duo. <laughs> yeah. And we somehow were, I remember some funny things about that. There was a friend of ours that drove like overnight out to like he drove from from vegas to to sacramento to watch us play and all of a sudden like literally it was like 15 20 minutes into the match we're like i think we lost like the first four games he's like oh i drove all, all this way for this <laughs> came back we won that match we ended up playing wow. john and rajiv like a few days later in calabasas like so we we got a win against them in the final there and then then we played them a couple days later in calabasas first round and at that time, obviously, John wasn't as established on tour as he, he, he would become. Neither was Rajiv. But we, we just felt like, okay, if we can compete and beat these guys, then, then we have a decent chance to keep playing at this level. And that was, you know, those are a couple of the moments that were in the initial stages, like just confidence building for us. And we were able to win a couple more challengers after that, just Dan and I together. One was Champagne, Illinois, I remember. But that was the the hardest part for him was that he had, he already had like three kids at that point. He has seven now, and man, I got three, and I'm <laughs> I'm waving the white flag. He's got seven. Unbelievable, man! Wow. Yeah, he's making up for me. I, I have I sort of <laughs> kids. I feel like, but I never had any of my own. But anyway, so so he it was it was tough for him to continue to keep playing. So we never really got to build on that momentum as much. And and by the time. I, I kept playing. I had some success playing with Ryler DeHart. We won, we won an event in Sarasota, a challenger there. Then we got into the U.S. Open. That was obviously a, a huge sort of, for me, like a huge moment just to be able to play in New York. And we had a tough, tough first round. We played Bopana and Qureshi. Oh man! And it was like, ironically, I think I think we were the only team to break them that whole tournament because they they made the finals and they they lost to Bob and Mike, but. 
even the, the final against Bob and Mike was like six, like seven, six, seven, six. And I, I rather, rather had, had experience playing at the USO before he played Rafa on, on Arthur Ashe and he played really well that match. I felt like I, I let him down a little bit when we played against Bopana Kureshi because we had some opportunities, but yeah, other than that, it was, I, I had the opportunity to play there. I played mixed another time with Nicole Melikar. She, she went on to like become a Grand Slam champion as well. 2012, I think we played at the, at the open in that, in the mixed doubles draw. Yeah. And then just, I, I never played main draw Wimbledon, but I got to play the, the qualies there with, with Purav Raja. That was a great experience. Awesome. And uh, just being able to travel to some of these events and compete against some of the guys that have gone on to have stellar careers was, was just what I sort of look back on and, 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 and just think, just have a lot of gratitude for just being able to be out there and, and do something I enjoyed so much. And mm. even, even though, like I said, like the, my, the trajectory is full of, and that's the thing that people uh, have to understand about tennis. It's like, you have like, like losses just become a part of it and you have to try to like, just bounce back because there's, there's yeah. only, there's so few players that can go week to week and continue to just not have to, take take a loss at, at the making the beatings man i mean it is a lonely place sometimes especially when you're in countries or areas around the world where you're, you're far from home you're far away from family maybe have a couple friends there i mean it doubles you got your partner but yeah the, right. one thing i've heard especially hanging around jeff is it's a james mcgee it's it is a grind and how are you able to and even till today maintain this mindset of gratitude of positive mindset even when it's not always w's in your column yeah i think i think just the process itself is very worthwhile to me when you're when you're sort of out to basically build like for me obviously i'm i'm, I'm very competitive and in my my childhood was similar to yours like you you, t you told me a story about how you had the older brother and, and I had older, I was the youngest. And so everything I was always trying to fight for a sort of approval or for, for a fight for my position and, and whether it was basketball, football, whatever it was. And I think for me, it kind of created like an independent streak a little bit. Like I, Hey, I have to I have to do this on my own. And, and in tennis, even when you're not getting like the results that you want, for me, it's always just like really trying to, and I think I, I touched on this earlier, but it's like if you have a vision of the way that you want to play and, and you you sort of conceptualize, for me, it's very unorthodox, right? But I've always sort of, that's the one thing that I always go back to. It's like, okay, I know the, the competitive part of it, like is going to handle itself when I'm out there on the court. Like I just, well, I'm, I just feel like I'm wired a certain way where I'm always going to, there's never going to be an issue for me being out there, not wanting to compete and play my best because I, I think it's just sort of that part happens naturally. But if I, if I get too distracted with the wins and losses, like when I come off the court, it takes me away from like trying to implement what is even more important for me is like sort of seeing this through and seeing like for the racket, for example, or for different aspects of my game, like I can't always control whether, whether I'm going to win or lose that match. I'm going to do everything I possibly can to, to, to win every time I'm out there. But if I'm seeing sort of the the progress of what I'm trying to implement out there, and that's how I approach it with with the, the kids I coach as well. It's like, hey, it's like, 
like this is what we're trying to accomplish. And when we get back to the drawing board, if we're, we might take a step or two back, but as long as we're compensating and, and trying to make the adjustments and implement like that vision we have for the way that we want to play, I guess. And it doesn't mean you don't have to adapt and make the right adjustments when you're out there playing. Like I, right. I, I was guilty of that for sure. I was like, Hey, I'm a certain volleyer, right? <laughs> like I'm going to, I'm going to come One in dimensional. On that's it. Yeah. <laughs> in, in altitude, but you don't have to do anything else. Sometimes you just keep coming uh, in. But coming, like there yeah. were times like I can think of in my singles career and stuff, or I mean, I didn't have much of a career. Right. But like when I was playing singles matches, when things were good, I felt like I could beat anyone, right? Yeah. But when guys were dropping balls at my feet and, and the conditions were really slow, the courts were slow, if I would have maybe spent a little more time just working on that plus one ball where I could tee off on a couple, then come in behind that, things like that where you don't want to get too like narrow-minded in terms of your development. But I think the most important part is just sort of having a clear idea of the way you want to play. And, and that sort of supersedes like the pain of the, the, the losses, because if you come off the court and you're like, Hey, like, this is what I went out to accomplish today. Obviously I, I failed in this, this aspect, but I stuck to my game plan and I saw sort of the fruits of some of my labors in this other, in these other areas. And it just gives you more motivation to get back on the practice court and, and start up again. And, and I think that's, I, I read a quote from, from Roger Federer one time, and it was just like someone asking him how, like he had already accomplished so much and he, obviously wasn't doing it for the money or any other reasons like what stale still gave him the motivation to be out playing while he was almost like close to 40 essentially and, and he was just like i enjoy playing basically more than than i hate losing right or something yeah, like that He's like, right. so many guys that are out there and they they just and i and i and i i relate to the hate losing part for sure we all do like if we're competitors but he's just like, at the end of the day, the whole process, he still enjoyed being out there. He enjoyed the travel and everything like that. That was more important to him than just being hung up on, on the losses. And that's a guy that didn't lose very much, right? <laughs> no, no. But even historically, from like yeah. his junior career till he finished, statistically, he did lose a lot. And that's just there one of those go. things uh, I think perspective-wise, we lose sight of when we see somebody play at that high of a level for so long. And when it when it comes to how you played tennis and it's amazing to hear one, yes, you're competitive, but kind of going from this like player phase to being a coach, when I played the game, I told you I was, I was a hundred thousand percent efforts, maybe not rational sometimes with my demeanor. I kind of lost my temper every now and then smashed a few rackets but when I, when I watch you play, Brian, you have a very even keel demeanor. And even talking to you today, I just don't see too many highs and too many lows that you kind of keep it even keel. And you and I both know when you're playing a tennis match, if you can figure out a way to win 51% of the points, sometimes it's 49 or 48, however, statistically that works out, but you just have to win over half of the points to win a match. And a lot of the kids that I coach, especially at the high school level, we talk all the time, like, Hey, if you go and take a math test at school and get a 51%, that's an F, but in tennis, that's an A. So you have these kind of peaks and valleys in every match that you play. And you're just trying to win the last point when it comes to your playing demeanor and what you're instilling as a coach. 
how in the world have you been able to keep such an even demeanor at the highest level of competition? Well, first off, I feel like you're giving me a little too much credit there. <laughs> I feel like when I'm on the court, I mean, it's, it's an outstanding question. Like, I feel in, inadequate answering it because I was on the court yesterday and I was like feeling so frustrated. <laughs> and, and that's sort of the whole game we play, right? And, and there's this phrase on, that we put on our rackets, right? And it's pure intention, no attachment. It started off, it started off like high intention, low attachment. And we kind of evolved, and I give this the credit to, to Jim Martineau, who's a, my greatest mentor in tennis. Mm. And in, you know, I, I lived with him from the time I was basically 17, on and off to, to my early 30s. And it's this idea that you can give everything you possibly can to something and, and, and yet do your very best to, to try to stay detached from the outcome, right? Mm. But one doesn't work without the other. Like, like if we're... Like, and, I, and we see this a lot in tennis, like with, I think in the, especially in the juniors, if you, if you try to get a player sometimes to, to be totally detached from the outcome, then their intention toward doing everything, everything they can to, to be their best out there to win, whatever it is, like the, the, the objective, like you said, 51% of the time, if you win 51% of the times you win the match. Right. Yeah. But, but if there's this like, seesaw battle going on where if you tell a kid hey no no don't don't get mad right but then they stop trying as hard because if you're if you're putting yourself on the line and you're trying your hardest and you're still not winning then there's this feeling of inadequacy and then you get mad and then it's like this whole cycle right, right. but if it's or if we're trying to coach players to to be to be less attached to that to the outcome or the result then the only way to maybe maybe achieve that for for certain players is, well, if I try a little less hard, then I'm not as responsible for the result. And I could have other reasons to sort of justify whether it's I'm not feeling my best today, I'm injured or anything like that. So, no. so what I focus on, and it's like I said, it's written on our rackets. It's just like giving everything I possibly can toward like, like being the best version of myself I can out there. Right. Cause that's, that's ultimately what, what we have to do in anything, right. To, to feel like we're putting our best foot forward. And then simultaneously, if we can, and I, and I fail at this every time I go on the court because I, I feel attached to the results still. I feel, and, and it might look like I'm even killed a lot of the time, but inside I'm like, I'm, I, I, I feel like I, as, as a player and as a coach as well, because and I, everything I, I do as a coach, I try to see through the lens of how I did approach things as a player because it helps me sort of relate to them. Yeah, And that's sort of the beauty of me still stepping in and playing sometimes too, because I I think that as coaches, we simplify things too much in, in the sense that, hey, why don't you just do this? And then I'm out there, I'm trying to do the same thing. It's right. a lot tougher, right? <laughs> That's true. It helps me keep my finger on the pulse of how things are like sort of evolving in the game today as well, because what worked for my brother and I 15 years ago might not necessarily work f for these guys in their in their development right now. I guess that's kind of a long-winded way uh, approach of just me reminding myself as a player and as a coach and my, reminding my players, hey, listen, the, the number one thing we have to uh, focus on is just giving the highest intention, the most pure intention we can in every moment. And simultaneously, we have to let go. We have to be conscious of the fact that the outcome is the part that obviously we, we can't completely attach ourselves to because we don't have control of it, right? Right. And it's a that's, I mean, I think it's 
this concept that everyone is in athletics is is aware of to a certain extent, but it's the implementation is the part that's requires so practice and diligence and and it's sometimes it's the it's the simple things right that aren't always easy but right. it's, that alone is just sort of what you know, your intention no attachment and i try to remind myself and i try to remind my players that is is as much as possible yeah uh, what a beautiful we talked about this before we hopped on and i was curious how some of these things on the racket that are written how they came about and i do want to want to stay there for just a second but i want to provide again some perspective of what a why means to me right like why am i playing tennis why am i coaching and just to give you some context just a couple of weeks ago i had a young lady on the podcast her name is tate schroeder now tate rose she just got married she's an assistant uh, women's tennis coach at virginia tech and I knew wow. her high school here in Colorado, and she was a survivor of a school shooting at Arapahoe High School. And the wow. year that she survived that school shooting, she had a friend of hers who lost her life, and she wrote that girl's name on her tennis shoes and wow. was not expected to win a state championship that year. There was some really good players that were part of the draw, and she would always just kind of have that reminder looking down at her shoes, playing for Claire. And that kind of got her to a moment of why that allowed her to overcome anyhow. And then to kind of make more parallel here is 20 years old, I lost my mom. She was an addict addicted to alcohol and she went to four rehabs and unfortunately just couldn't kick it. And I ended up writing her name on my arm when I was playing my junior year in college. And I was able to win tournaments and matches that I had no business winning, but I was kind of fueled by something more. And these types of moments where you're able to tap into a why, and this whole mission of the BTB project is impossible's nothing. The guy that started playing tennis at 14 years old, who weighed over 300 pounds, goes off and loses a hundred pounds in 13 months and walks on and plays division one tennis. That's awesome. Man. How does it happen? Right. And how do all of these stories that I've come across as a, as a former player and a coach to where there's a lot of people tapping into wise. Mm -hmm. So as I frame that, I want you to think about Brian Battistone and your why, because you're not just doing incredible things as a player, but you're doing incredible things as a coach. And when I think about ways that I wanted to be coached growing up, kind of hearing a little bit of your compassion, your empathy, your ability to meet people where they're at is an extraordinary, not very common way to coach. So I'd love to hear what's your why, Brian Battistone, and how does that propel you as a coach today? Well, first off, your story, like your story inspires me more than anything I've ever done. That's for sure. And I appreciate you sharing that with me. I mean, that's just incredible, like miraculous stuff. And so I, I, I feel humbled that you even say those words about me, because to me, I've been very, I've been very blessed I, with the opportunity to be able to play sports and in particular tennis my whole life. Like 
play sports my whole life, but actually take this journey in tennis into adulthood. And uh, I mean, obviously I have to thank my parents first. They sort of gave me the resources to be able to, and the the belief, uh, I I guess I could say to, to take the, uh, the path less traveled. And, and there was, uh, you know, there was definitely times, I mean, I think anyone in the tennis world needs support um, of, of one form or another, but I took a path less traveled in the sense that I did spend between 18 and 21. I spent time out, outside of the box. I was coaching. I was trying to supplement my career a little bit. And I was trying to figure out like who, who I wanted to be as an athlete, but also as a person. And it's funny, I feel a little funny about it saying because I don't, I don't feel like I've even had that much success as a player or, or a coach, but I do feel like there was always something that compelled me to, to want to follow this path and that somewhere along this path, I was going to be doing something that was going to be worthwhile and, and, and being able to, whether it's connect with other players when I was playing, I, I have the amount of uh, relationships I, I made on tour just with different guys that I played doubles with. The, the amount of times I learned things from them and I still stay in touch with them about one thing or another is some of the more meaningful things that happened while I was playing on tour and, and being able to be in a position where I realize I don't have all the answers for my, for my players, but I'm able to sort of share, share these stories and share my experiences with them are is again, it's a privilege to be able to be able to do that. And, and, and for me, the why has always been that there's just something much greater going on mm. on the path than just the sport itself. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm someone who obviously I have my own beliefs about how, what that means. Right. But yeah. I think regardless of, of someone's belief structure in, in a, whatever you want to call it, a spiritual or religious sense, I feel like if you're, if something is compelling you, over and over again to do something and and you're 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 listening to that you're you're aware of it in the in enough of and I'm, I'm sorry if i'm not verbalizing this very well you're paying attention to the little inclinations that you get each day to to try to pursue a certain path then i feel like you can't you can't go wrong right and i think that's i've tried to live and i've, I've made so many mistakes and continue to make many mistakes as a coach and as a player but but I feel like if you're at the end of the day and every day that you wake up, if you're, if you're paying attention to that intuitive, whatever you want to call it, some in the religion, they might call it like a still small voice or in, intuition or that feeling that is compelling you to do something, then I feel like that's where the magic happens. And I think that for me, people might say, oh, well, hey, why do you keep doing this? You're 44 and you're still trying to, you're still trying to play, you're trying to help guys play, but they're losing all these things. It's like, all that is irrelevant. If you feel like you're doing what, what is right. And, and that's for me, the wisest I've never, ever since the time I was 18, I decided, Hey, I want to, I want to sort of devote my professional life to this sport. Mm. I've never, because I've always like felt regardless of the losses, regardless of all of the ups and downs along the way, I just felt like at and I give, again, I, it's, it's important to have mentors, right? Yes. Because I give a lot of uh, credit to my mentors. It's just like it was never, it's never really been about just the sport itself. It's just been about, hey, you're meant to be in this, in this capacity. You're meant to like give everything you have toward it. And, and the rest will sort of take care of itself. But like 
tell people, Hey, just follow your instincts and stuff like that. But for me, it's worked. I've never doubted. I've never doubted that I'm, I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing in spite of whether or not it's showing up on the scoreboard. Yeah. And I would have to say that as far as what's driving me and what's driving us as we close is kind of this concept of a servant leader being able to just be there for people. For me, it was to be a coach like I never had, to be a positive influence, a positive voice, a, a positive encouragement to the people that are struggling. Because I know that you've come across some players and maybe even partners when you're playing doubles that it's not always daisies and rose petals out there. And being able to maintain the mindset that we've talked about today and to believe in those words that are written on your racket is a true testament of who you are as a person. And I'll put you on the spot here lastly is, man, I just can't thank you, your brother, natural tennis, what you guys have done for me to be able to pay forward a racket technology that has encouraged a lot of kids that might've not wanted anything to do with tennis but because they were able to find a way to create some leverage that they couldn't create with a one-handled tennis racket, it got kids interested in tennis. It got kids encouraged, inspired, confident to not just do things on the tennis court, but to our point, to be good contributors in life. And the hundreds and thousands of kids that have been able to be impacted by you guys through me, I'm forever grateful for. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that to close and appreciate all your words. Well, I appreciate that so much. And the rat, the racket has truly become a tool for us. It's a conversational piece for sure. Right. <laughs> However people approach it, but it's, and I've had, and, and I appreciate And Like I said, that like you sharing that means so much because I've, I've had some experiences like with people very close to me with cerebral palsy that use the racket that for limited on one side of their body but the, the racket definitely helps them play other people that have just learned the game through using the racket and even though my nature is not necessarily as a salesman when it comes to promoting the two-handled racket i think it's it's enabled us it's been a tool and for my players that use the racket or don't use the racket our whole thing is just to try to be a force for good right right and in in the racket regardless of how people approach us when it when it comes to that it's like it opens the door to be able to connect with people. And, and I think like your stories, like you've shared, it makes me want to, makes me want to promote the racket. Right. Because like when I'm telling, when I'm trying to convince someone and I never do. Right. But it's like, Oh, Hey, your backhand would be better with this or your, your serve, your overhead. It's like, that only goes so far. Right. Right. But it's like when it impacts someone's life and they weren't able to do something before, but now they're able to do it. And, experience a lot of joy in that process then that's like that's something where where it makes me so happy because like it's meaningful and i know that was the whole objective of my first partner in this project was who's lionel burt and his his whole thing was like just having people enjoy the sport right in a, in a healthy way as, as well because some people play and they're they're able to play for a certain period of time but injuries get in the way and he always felt like this was the most healthy way to play tennis and for people that have disabilities, whatever it is, right? Enable to, enabling people to, to experience joy and, and trying to do everything we can to be a force for good in the process is, is what it's all about for our team. And, and, and I consider 
you to you can be the leader of our team for Amal for, for as far as I'm concerned <laughs> because everything you shared with me to me like blows away winning tennis matches that's because mm. I think if, if the racket if it were just you who were able to tell me that then everything was worth it all along the way because that's really from from the very first moment we we started creating the racket it was just to enable people to to have that tool to to have more fun and and playing the game and that's if we've accomplished that the handful of times along the way then then that makes me really content with the whole journey <laughs> absolutely it's it's well said and man i'm just uh, i'm proud of you keep doing what you're doing when it comes to the listeners can you tell them a little bit how can people find you follow you and support the movement that you're on right now sure we still we have the website it's being actually updated as we speak naturaltennis.com we we have we have a guy in Europe. He, he's 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 in Italy. He's helping us with all of that. He's been very instrumental in kind of keeping the the racket out there and in the mainstream. One of our players, Tennyson Whiting, just broke into the three hundreds and doubles. Oh, so using the racket. Yeah, and he's hopefully he's he's a great kid. Yeah, from the Intermountain area. He's from Utah. And he's 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 having a lot of success. Sam, my my nephew Sam Battistone is he's currently on a on a two year mission, but he's he's going to be back and playing with the racket too. So we have a handful of guys that are out there playing with it. And I personally am going to devote more and more time to getting like people, just kids and beginners that are just being introduced to the game, yeah. um, like using the racket because I think. At the bare minimum, I think as a teaching aid, it's very effective to help uh, players like turn their shoulders on both sides. Then if they want to move on to a, a more traditional racket, that's fine. But yeah, that's sort of where we're at right now. But it's naturaltennis.com. And, and if we happen to be at a tournament anywhere near anyone that, that watches this event, please come up and, and talk to us. We'll be happy to hit some balls. And, and uh, regardless of what racket you're using, you could try out the two-handled racket or you could just hit with us. But that would be, that would be amazing. And in, in your case, I hope I hope we can come out you know, or maybe meet up at one of these events in the states along the way as well, because we're gonna we're gonna be here the rest of the year, and 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 we should definitely try to link up and make it happen. I appreciate it, Brian. A lot of people always ask me where the racket comes from. I say a vending machine. Now they know where it really comes from. So that's. <laughs> I'm going to start using that. <laughs> hey, nonetheless, Brian Battistone, thank you for spending some time with me during your busy schedule and joining me on the BTB project. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.